0: Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And on this podcast, I have long format informal conversations with people whose work overlaps with climate in some way. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, my apologies for the delay. Thanks for your patience and sorry it has taken me a little extra time to get this to you. Uh, today was just a little too busy. I had planned to do it today. Didn't work out like everybody else. I'm trying to adjust to the lockdown life. I'm trying to figure out how to balance the work and family commitments and podcast commitments and all the other things that I'm juggling. Uh, you'd think that it would be simpler if you don't, didn't have to travel anywhere, but I, I guess it's actually more complicated when everything's happening in one place <laughs> all the time. And, uh, You know, we try to put some structure on it. We try to put some shape to the thing, to our days. But some days work better than others. Uh, You know, I I had a pretty good string of days here. We had a pretty good string of days here at the house. That was all right. But uh, earlier in the week, it was a bit rough. So, uh, you know, we have good days. We have bad days. And I hope you're doing okay out there. Hope you're holding up all right this episode, I'm really happy to bring it to you. I had a conversation with Sonia Legg. Sonia uh, Legg, she is an oceanographer at Princeton University, and she's. I'm just telling you a bit about her from her websites here. I'm going to look up. She has a website at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, which is a NOAA lab, NOAA being, of course, the National and Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. So, Sonia Leg, I'm just reading from her website. She's a physical oceanographer and associate director of the Cooperative Institute for Modeling the Earth System at Princeton University, through which she collaborates closely with the NOAA GFDL. She mentioned in the episode that she has an office there in GFDL. She teaches atmospheric and oceanic wave dynamics every spring semester. She advises graduate students. And she's interested, I'm reading from her research interests here. Uh, her research interests focus on the physics and dynamics of the ocean circulation. In particular, she's interested in ocean mixing driven by breaking internal waves. Those are internal waves, they're waves in the interior, the subsurface of the ocean, as the name suggests, overflows and gravity currents, and deep convection, and all these lovely geophysical phenomena, mixing and instabilities. It's, it's uh, beautiful stuff. Going on, I'm reading more. Motivated by ocean observations, I use a co- she uses a combination of numerical simulations and theory to understand mixing processes. And we talk about this part in the episode, that she collaborates with climate model developers to implement improved representations of these small-scale processes into the big-scale climate prediction models. So, But through that, she's exploring the impact of small-scale mixing on the large-scale ocean circulation and climate. So that's her science work. And she also has this other important area of her professional life, where she is making a efforts and has been for a while making efforts to broaden the participation and representation in the geosciences. Just reading to you from her website some more. She's an active participant in several organizations for mentoring and supporting women in the geoscience. For example, mentoring physical oceanography women to increase retention. That's the Empower organization. We talk about that on the episode and for more on Empower, of course they have a website, but you can also Uh, go back and listen to the conversation with Susan Lozier, where we discussed that empower organizations some more. She's also involved, Sonia Legg that is, is involved with Princeton Women in Geosciences and the Earth Science Women's Network. She's working to increase the participation of historically underrepresented groups in climate science through membership and mentoring in these organizations and participation in the uh, NSF funded geoscience opportunities for leadership and diversity the gold program super super active in all of these areas as you can as you can hear and you will hear more about all of her uh activities in the episode of course you know we talked over zoom we talked remotely of course we're still in the social distancing era if you're listening to this in the future you know th- 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 this uh era is just going to have this indelible mark of being recorded any of these podcasts from this era are just going to have this indelible mark of being recorded during the pandemic. They're all over Zoom or over some kind of conference, video conference software. And I think it was fine. I think it came out really nicely. Uh, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And I'd like to say a big thank you to Sonia Legg for giving up some time in her uh, her day to talk with me and to go through her science and her retention efforts, her efforts to broaden participation and representation in geoscience, I really, really got a lot out of our conversation. So uh, as we usually do on this show, we talked a little bit later in the episode about her pathway into science, which I thought was super interesting. And I hope you'll enjoy it as well. If you'd like to find Sonia Legg, Dr. Legg, you can find her on Twitter at Sonia Legg, spelled just like it is. On the episode here, no spaces or dashes or anything, just at Sonia Leg on Twitter. And you can also look her up on the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory webpage and the Princeton University webpage. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. Blah, blah, blah. I said that way too fast. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. <laughs> there you go. And you can also get updates about the podcast at Climate on Twitter. Okay, so let's jump into it. Here's this conversation with Sonya Leg. Hope you're doing okay. Here we go. That's and then I don't necessarily use everything right, but it's kind of nice to just have it on and just to kind of, to not have like a formal start to it, but just to kind of, you know, relax into it. Um, so, yeah, thanks for being flexible about the timing. Uh, no problem. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, uh, it can be weirdly hard to, to schedule, even though we're all, you know, kind of stuck in our houses. It can actually be hard to schedule things because uh, uh, there's been a lot more remote uh, events kind of happening. And then, of course, you know, like, like the whole family can be home. So you might have the the whole family to juggle at once. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, my younger daughter is having her percussion practice right now, but fortunately she's at the other room, other end of the house. I don't think we can hear.
0: Yeah. Nice backing track to the, (laughs) to the conversation. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Thank you again for, um, excuse me, gosh, got a little bit of a, of a, something caught in my throat here. I'll just have some water. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you again for volunteering. Uh, I'm I'm glad to have you here. Glad to have you. Glad to be chatting with you on Zoom. Uh, I'm sure you've had a ton of Zoom meetings, so I appreciate you, you know, Zoom and Skype and everything else. So I appreciate you. taking. This week seems a
1: little quieter than last week. Last week, I think everybody was feeling like they had to stay in touch and make sure everybody was okay and so on. And this week, Mm -hmm. everybody's kind of, saying, okay, let us actually try and do some work now, or uh, something.
0: Let's calm down a little bit for you. Yeah. Yeah, how have you found the whole adjustment? So you you said you've got a a kid there.
1: Um, Yeah, so, I mean, my children are um, uh, much older than uh, some people's children, you know, so they are uh, pretty self-sufficient. And my older daughter's at college, but she came back um, uh, at the end of her term. And um, the younger daughter is doing classes online, four hours a day. Um, But, uh, you know, I I don't have to worry about any of that. Uh, She does it all herself. But um, I know it's been very stressful for a lot of people who are trying to look after young children who need more attention and so on. Um, For us, it's actually been quite fun to have time as a family. Usually, you know, younger, uh, younger daughter is usually very busy with lots of extracurricular activities. And our older daughters at college um, and so we've been doing a lot of family tv shows and things like this that we don't normally have time for during the school year so that's yeah also.
0: that there have to be some silver linings in this yeah. insane situation and you have and to being able to all,
1: all eat dinner together uh, every day of the week um, we haven't done that in quite a while uh, mm. since last summer probably
0: <laughs> yeah so you get a bit more time together a bit more um, yeah a bit more time together and that that can really be a good thing it's uh and it it does you might it does give you an opportunity to potentially explore different uh kind of adjustment strategies you know if if you used to if you're used to kind of going out for walks or you know if you're kind of daily uh going to work routine you know if that had been kind of some people like cycle you know to work mm. I just mean it takes an adjustment but that's that's obvious that's uh yeah yeah i mean
1: fortunately around here we're still allowed out um so we have several parks in walking distance and i've been going running just short runs to just get out the house and um sitting outside when the weather's nice and i have chickens in the garden and a little bit of gardening to do and um, so those have all been nice diversions um Uh, obviously you know we can't do our usual weekend go out to a restaurant uh, relaxation or anything but um, uh, we haven't been completely stuck inside at least and the weather has been reasonably nice uh, most of the time
0: nice that's what i've heard i talked to someone in vermont um, not too long ago and they said that just a couple of days ago that the weather was was pretty beautiful pretty nice and and relaxing yeah um Yeah. So the, you know, these tend to be, these things tend to be kind of conversational and they tend to, I'm still adjusting my, myself to the online format, right? That's different. Mm-hmm. That's that's different from being in the room with somebody, um, yeah. obviously, but uh, you know, it, it can still work out. Okay. It's, it just takes a little bit of a little bit of adjust, an adjustment. And I also, I'm conscious of, uh, your next meeting you know you mentioned that you've got one at at 3 p.m which is 8 p.m for my time so i'll keep an eye on eye on my clock here <laughs> as we're yeah, talking but,
1: i mean I'm, I'm chatting with my graduate student i could always send her a text and you know delay by half an hour or something if we need mm. to so.
0: okay yeah well we can see how it goes and then i'll check in with you and see how you're feeling mm-hmm. and um you know we can we can either go that route or we could always talk another time as well. It's, it's flexible. It's easy. Mm-hmm. We can, we can decide what we want to do. Um, you sent through a nice list of topics that we could talk about. And I guess I'm conscious of like, you know, I don't want to just march us through a, a agenda. You know, I want us to be able to have a chat, um, but it look, I think some of these topics would be really good to talk about. Maybe a good segue would be a couple of episodes ago. You know, I talked to Susan Lozier Mm -hmm. and we talked a good bit about her role in Empower in that organization and how that came about. So could you tell me a little bit about your involvement with the Empower organization?
1: Yeah, so um, I was lucky enough to be um, invited by Susan to uh, participate as a mentor in Empower about uh, 2008, I think. I wasn't part of the initial discussions about setting up Empower and so on. I think at the time it was initially set up, I was busy with two small children and so on. Uh, But in 2008, she asked me if I'd like to uh, lead one of the mentoring groups. And so I've been leading mentoring groups since 2008. I think I'm on my fifth group now. Uh, We have two uh, group leaders who are uh, mid to uh, senior scientists and um, about six uh, early career scientists, uh, ranging from uh, the end of their PhDs through to postdoc, through to the early years of a faculty position. And each group lasts about two to three years. um, And then the group members can participate in another group and and everything gets reshuffled. Um, and so I've been doing that since 2008. And then I attended my first Petulo conference, which is the every two years conference at Empower Runs. Um, and they have about 12 senior scientists, both men and women, and about 25 to 28 uh, early career uh, women. And so I so f- attended...
0: Sorry? Yeah, so, sorry. So the, so the objective, broadly speaking, like of these organizations is to diver- help diversify climate science, right, is to help in terms of that axis of getting more uh, women in the field and retained in the field, getting more people from different underrepresented groups in the field. That's the overall objective, Yeah, right? so,
1: well, Empower is very, very focused um, on, uh, on women and right. retention of women in physical oceanography. And so the, the goal of Empower was specifically not so much to recruit p- people into the field, but to focus on the years between the end of the PhD and the beginning of a, um, a more permanent long-term position and trying to um, uh, help people kind of ride out the obstacles that they encounter along the way. Um, and, and so it, it, uh, I think one of its um, strengths has been that very narrow focus on um, women in physical oceanography Um, and now uh, we've been thinking about how to apply those uh, the lessons that we've learned through Empower to uh, more broadly to other underrepresented groups and to other disciplines and so on. So uh, after being involved in the Petulo conference, which is usually aimed at kind of the the postdoc level um, getting people to be part of a community to feel like they belong in in physical oceanography. then in 2013, um, no, actually a little earlier, about 2011 or so, Susan asked me if I'd like to be on the steering committee. And then in 2013, she said that she would like to rotate off the leadership of Empower and asked me if I'd be willing to be one of the PIs. So we wrote a new proposal in 2013. And since 2014, when it was funded, I've been one of the co PIs for Empower. And uh, I mean, one of the things I love about Empower is that we've been continuously funded through um, peer-reviewed proposals to NSF mostly. Mm. Uh, we also get funding from NASA and ONR and a little bit from NOAA. Um, but it's really been uh, something that NSF has backed us all the way through the physical oceanography program, not through any education or diversity program, but just through the physical oceanography program. Eric Itzwer at NSF um, really um, put a lot of effort into the idea that if we're willing to fund research in physical, physical oceanography, we should also be willing to fund um, mechanisms that preserve that human capital in the discipline. Um, can, and that's can, the idea.
0: Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit? You mentioned that you've been applying some of the lessons that you've been learned to the more you know, recent proposals and, and other organizations. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the lessons that you have learned about the, like retaining
1: mm. more women
0: and oceanography?
1: So I, I think having people feel like um, they belong in the discipline is really important for uh, retention. And um, so for women, what we focused on, the idea is it, connecting with with other women who may not be at your own institution, but there are other women physical oceanographers. And if you connect with them, uh, you you then feel, yes, this is my community. I can belong to it. Um, and uh, improving access to information. A lot of the ways in which we succeed in in academia and research is by who you know and uh, somebody who who knows uh, a job opportunity, for example, bringing it to your attention and so on. So we've been trying to make that access to information more um, widespread uh, by putting stuff on our websites, by communicating, uh, by having our our mentor group leaders communicate with the early career scientists and so on. and so we've made a template for how Empower works, that with the two main things being the, um, the telephone mentoring groups and the Petula conference. Uh, we also have the websites. We have these webinars that we've really fo- tried to focus on, um, uh, early stages of a more long-term position, uh, independent PI type positions. Mm. Um, uh, twice a year, we have a webinar. And that's open to anybody who, who wants to sign up. Um, so all of those, th- those things, um, we've written a handbook, how we do it. Really, you know, the details of the logistics and so on. And we made that handbook available on our website. And whenever anybody asks me about, you know, we would love to have an Empower type of organization in our field. And I say, well, here's our handbook. Hmm. Uh, you go ahead and write your proposals. Um, so there has been some, sometimes people saying, well, why can't we make Empower, for example, open to people from around the world or open to other disciplines and so on um, and I, I think you know the, the idea should be available to everybody, but there's only uh, we, with our small amount of funding there's only a certain number of people we can um, uh, include and we try to include everybody who wants to be included who falls within the kind of purview of uh, early career woman or non-binary physical oceanographer in the United States um, right. and and then you know, if people in Europe want to do something similar, we're very happy to share our expertise. But they should try and obtain funding from their sources, and so on.
0: I can see part of what feels a little intuitive to me about what you just said is that if you're trying to build a network, because that, that's part of the that's one of the objectives, right? Build a network. Mm-hmm. And if you, I guess, if you just define it really, really broadly, you know, any field, any subject, then it might get a little diffuse then you you might actually have kind of a relatively weak network because it's too diffuse. And it's not that you want to exclude people, but it's just that you do want to have some definitions in place of what kind of network, because ultimately like another physical oceanographer working in the States is probably going to be able to help somebody who's getting into physical oceanography in the States because they will know the funding schemes. They will know the kind of typical structures in universities that they might run into if they're if they're working at a university so that that part of it feels intuitive to me in in that way or that 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 makes sense to me um and uh,
1: course, we have a lot of alumni who are now based in europe and australia hmm. and china and so on and um they still remain on the email list and they receive all the notifications and so on um, and when somebody in a mentor group moves overseas for their postdoc or something, they they can stay in the mentor group. Right. Um, so, um, uh, it's just that we, um, I mean, it does sometimes make things more complicated with time zone differences and that sort of thing. Um, but we try at least for the, the duration of that mentor group to keep, keep people on board. Um, but, hmm. um, uh, yeah, I think in terms of, you know, a field where, um, success depends on, um, knowing the particular structure against which you're going to be evaluated and the funding opportunities and the job opportunities and all those sorts of things. I think it's good to have um, uh, that uh, um, kind of focus um, that we have.
0: Have there been any challenges in this effort that have been really um, kind of exceptionally difficult or kind of exceptionally resistant to or things that you feel like I wish we could make more progress in this dimension or that dimension, and maybe we could open it up to just a broader diversity conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're, what do you kind of perceive as some of the biggest challenges that we still have along? So I think the the
1: challenges that um, empower was started at a time when um, the idea was let's focus on the individuals who are encountering obstacles and kind of help them to adapt to this environment. Whereas I think actually now what we need to do is change the environment. Um, we need to get rid of the obstacles, not tell people how to climb over them. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and I think this is very true when you come to other underrepresented groups and uh, uh, people from low-income backgrounds, um, that there are too many obstacles put in people's way uh, that prevent us from getting the best scientists in, in our field. Um, and we should be focusing not on giving people the tools to cope with these problems, but getting rid of the things that cause problems in the first place. Um, and that, need, that needs more structural institutional change rather than yes. trying to fix the individuals.
0: Yes, I've, I've, uh, just as an observer, uh, I've noticed, I don't want to overgeneralize, but let's just say I have encountered um, more established, uh, older uh, women researchers and scientists who will will kind of they'll take a little bit more of that first strategy that you mentioned, and that's even the advice they'll give other people is they'll say, "Oh, just work within the system. Just you know adjust how you're doing things. Just realize this is how things are." And then I'm also observing uh, younger women scientists who say the second thing you said, which is, you know, no, no, we need to change this structure. We need, we shouldn't just accept this as it is. We are allowed to say all of this needs to be <laughs> redefined mm-hmm. you know, in a big way. So and, I don't know I if think, that's, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, yeah.
1: I think I'm a person who started off thinking the first way sort mm-hmm. of like, well, I can figure out how to navigate this or whatever. Um, uh, and so I'll, I'll be fine. But then I realized that that doesn't, that doesn't work for everybody. And uh, by thinking that way, we're excluding uh, a lot of people and and we're putting all the onus for change on the the, the people who are marginalized mm. and so um if we are really going to be um uh, be fair and uh have people from sufficiently wide um backgrounds that we can um, have a diversity of perspectives and um Uh, really tap, fully tap the talent pool, all those sorts of reasons why you want to um, uh, get people from all different backgrounds into science. Uh, We need to to change the structure.
0: Um, Mm. Can you give me some examples of the structural change?
1: Um, Well, I mean, um, some of the things that, um, uh, just recent things, um, I know there's been a campaign at at Oxford, for example, to get rid of the application fee for PhDs. Mm, Um, And in the US, it's also expensive to apply for a PhD program, but many universities do give waivers. Um, So that's an example of a financial barrier. Um, Do we really want to pick PhD students based on whether they can pay? In the US, we have the GRE exam, which is also another financial barrier. Mm. And I've been um, trying to persuade the faculty in my program to drop the GRE, Um, Several departments of Princeton have now dropped it, and I'm hopeful that uh, in the not too distant future I might persuade uh, my own faculty. Um, Then there are um, things like uh, whether we evaluate our students based on, you know, which university they got their undergrad degree at. And obviously people choose their undergrad university for all sorts of different reasons. And if you're a low income student, you're going to have very different reasons than a high income student. Um, uh, So, um, and then, you know, the whole way that the career structure in in research and academia is so much designed around you do your PhD one place and you move somewhere far away to do your postdoc. And then after two years, you have to move somewhere else again. And and that's all designed for a single person with no dependents, right? and that sort of thing. Um, so those are just some examples of things that I think structurally we need to change in order to have the best people in, in our field doing science. Right,
0: because it's it's excluding people who could potentially make really nice contributions and could leave could lead really full research lives.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but
0: it's excluding people uh, just on the basis of well they they have a family or they um you know don't have the financial means to move around every year or every other year um because all that moving is expensive uh, and most universities and institutes don't typically pay a lot for relocation they might you know, in my experience anyway you might be able to find little bits and p- bits and pieces uh to help you but they are not going to it's not like uh, some folks in the private sector you know where um you know, I'm just going on the experience of a friend of mine who had, you know, his international moves paid for entirely by his company. So it was very, uh, it was very easy for him. But yeah, so the, that's a, that's a great example.
1: Yeah. Um, and another example, I know of a PhD student who when she was looking at postdocs because she had children who were in high school, she just couldn't move a location, you know, it would be unfair to her kids to uh, root them up and, Take them to a totally different school system halfway through their high school, so, right. so very much limited her uh, choices of postdocs she could do.
0: Hmm. I wonder if we're going to open up more to remote working. I mean, this might feel like kind of an obvious question right now, given all of the uh, remote sort of things we are uh, trying to do now uh, that we're kind of being forced to to really reckon with. But um, there are some fields that have gotten more comfortable with remote working than than others. You know, I know mm. some of my uh, some people I know in computer science, for example, they might work for a company in California and they just, uh, they live in different places. They just live where they want to, where it makes sense to them. Um, so yeah, I wonder if we're going to see an increase in that, um, especially if we end up in a, in a lockdown or uh, social distancing sort of situation for a prolonged period of time that might force us to rethink yeah. how we hire people.
1: Well, we're trying to work this out for our intern program this summer. So this is another thing that I've been working on um, running. A, we're now in our fifth year of having an internship program at uh, GFDL in Princeton. And the idea is to bring in uh, particularly undergrads um, from uh, underrepresented backgrounds, bring them to Princeton for a summer to work with scientists at GFDL. Often it's the early career scientists who who want to um, um, uh, do the hands-on mentoring and um and now this summer we don't know what's going to happen so we're trying to see which of our internships could be transitioned to um, remote working internships um, but even that has inequities so not all students have a laptop and uh, good uh, internet connections and so right. on from their home institutions um but we have had problems in the past with uh um, we give travel uh, funds and we, um, we pay the interns, but if somebody is a mature student, for example, and they um, are living in a house in their home institution, they can't uh, then, when they come and um, do the internship, they're having to pay uh, additional housing and, and so our you know, stipend that we provide didn't, doesn't account for that, that somebody might be needing to still pay their housing mm. back at their home institution as, as for the summer. Right. And then if they have family, uh, how, how do they bring their family with them for the summer and so on. Um, so you know, we often, especially in the US, people look to see whether undergraduates when they're applying for graduate school have research experience and, and get references from mm. their research advisors. Um, but getting research experience is not easy for everybody. And we certainly know that our internship doesn't pay what they could earn in the private sector. And so some students just want to earn a lot of money over the summer in order to pay their, um, their tuition and living expenses during the school year. And, and our internship certainly doesn't uh, go that far. So it's it's very difficult trying to break down barriers uh, and then you come up against new barriers that you hadn't thought of. You know?
0: Right. But to change course a little bit, that makes me think of So you're someone who is aware of some of those communication barriers, some of those network barriers that prevents people from working together who maybe would really benefit from working together. And you have you've described yourself as somebody who is a modeler who works with observationalists. So that's another uh, gap between uh, two different communities that you have been working to bridge and, and a network that you've been setting up to establish. So I'd, I'd like to hear you talk more about that, um, partly for selfish reasons, because I'm going to t- try to start uh, working more with observationalists in the not-too-distant future on a specific project. So um, so how uh, can you give me an example? Is there a recent example of a time when you've you know, worked with some observationalists, some of the successes of that, some of the challenges of that? Mm-hmm. Um, just so whatever... I think- yeah.
1: The m- most recent example was um, going to the Southern Ocean in 2017. Um, so I went with um, people from Southampton and from British Antarctic Survey and Woods Hole. We were on a bass ship um, on on the James Clark Ross, and oh,
0: um,
1: oh yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've got my I've got um, my on.
1: Mine is red, and so I was roped into this by Kurt Polzin at Woods Hole. So um, a lot of my interacting with observationalists dates back to the time when I was at Woods Hole. And in fact, at the time when I was at Woods Hole, I think a lot of the observationalists didn't really know kind of what to do with me. Um, mm-hmm. We weren't always speaking the same language. But over the years, um, I have shown that I can do some simulations that are useful to observationalists. And, and I've mm-hmm. started figuring out you know, what it is that I can do that uh, will get observationalists interested in uh, and, and how I can use the observations in my modeling and so on. Um, where did
0: you go on the research cruise?
1: So we went um, uh, around the Orkney Passage region. So it's just uh, near the Orkney Plateau uh, between mm-hmm. the Woodell Sea and the Scotia Sea. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of the cruise was to investigate the, the dense water coming from the Woodell Sea flowing into the Scotia Sea over this very complicated topography and find out what are the uh, how much mixing occurs and where is the mixing relative to the topography and then explore the processes that might be responsible for the mixing. And um, so my role as a modeller um, was uh, well, I did some initial simulations before the cruise, and that helped us plan uh, where to um, focus the observations. Uh, so we actually went a little further um, east around the Orkney uh, Deep than we had originally planned, because in the simulations the dense water wasn't taking the shortest route, but it was uh, following bathymetric contours and. Um, and, and uh, kind of getting diverted around one of the sills. Mm. Um, so this is a
0: simulation of that particular region of the Orkney passage and the surrounding area. I guess, uh, yeah. was, it a, was it a pretty high resolution case? Because I guess the, the passage has some pretty small bathymetric mm. features. So my
1: initial simulations were about one kilometer horizontal resolution and I initialized them with, um, well I tried a couple of different ways. Um, starting from the socio-reanalysis, uh, getting kind of average uh, summer conditions, um, and then I also forced it with um, the uh, CTD profiles that have been taken in the Wood Sea by um, the, the Lamont group for many years now. There's some moorings there, and I use that, uh, uh, and they take CTDs whenever they turn around the moorings. So I use that to to help motivate how how much uh, what the structure of the the flow coming in from the south looks like. Um, and then um, since okay. the cruise, I use the actual CTD pro, uh, sections to initialize the, the flow coming in from the south and, and just let it run all over this topography. Um, and then I've done some zoomed-in simulations of the region just in the Orkney Passage, which is between the Orkney Deep and the Scotia Sea. There's a sill there, and all the dense water gets uh, concentrated through the sill. And um, so uh, higher-resolution simulations there allow us to look at um, some of the instabilities that are occurring. So there's a a hydraulic control, there's a hydraulic jump, there are um, sort of Ekman-driven downwelling along the slope, and then there's some convective and uh, symmetric and centrifugal instability happening adjacent to the slope. And the really exciting thing was that when we were out at sea, we did this very high-resolution TOYO survey. So we were towing the CTD as we were moving, uh, and the CTD is going up and down in the water as we're moving slowly. and so we had very high resolution, and from that, um, Alberto calculated the uh, potential vorticity.
0: Uh, Alberto Nervia Garabato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Southampton, yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, so he was the chief scientist on the cruise, mm. and um, and he uh, looked at the potential vorticity and identified that there was conditions for symmetric instability and centrifugal instability. So I did the same with the model simulations, and we found very good uh, agreement. So mm. that was quite exciting. And now with the model simulations. I can do experiments that you can 't do in the observations, so i 'm smoothing out the topography and seeing what happens to the instabilities and changing the the flow rate through the passage and see what happens to the instabilities and so on so um, I like being uh, you know inspired by and motivated by the observations and then doing things with the simulations to try and uh, explore what 's causing what in the observations
0: yeah, you mentioned potential vorticity i 'm still kind of amazed by potential vorticity you know this the measure of stratification and rotation that and it amazes me that by looking at that measure of stratification and rotation we can learn a lot about the potential instabilities that are there and the potential mm-hmm. way in which the water might you know start churning up and start mixing you know it, it's such a you know the, this old ancient uh, picture of the ocean is just being stagnant and not really moving around you know we now know so much more about how dynamic it is and about how much more interesting it is and you know, it's it's kind of still amazing to me that there's that one central quantity this potential vorticity thing that we can use to uh, to know so much about how the ocean might develop in these in these instabilities so that so that that's cool it sounds like you really were you know working with the observationalists pretty directly and I guess the advantage of the simulations that you're running is that Um, You're not missing any data, you know, you have data from every location and every time, Mm. at least, at least the only limit for you is how often can you output that data, how much disk space do you have, and how long will it take you to churn through all of that, uh, all of that data. So, but you're not limited in the way that, you know, somebody who's observing something, they will have a finite sample, and they are having to do statistics to, of some form or they're having to make assumptions about well this is reasonably representative or not representative but it, it's cool to hear about like in real time you were um you were uh, making these simulations to help inform where your observations yeah are i
1: mean out. i didn't actually do simulations on the ship so i had done some simulations oh, okay. before we went out to sea and then i've done a whole lot of simulations since we came back Right. Um, on the ship, I just had the I, I brought, you know, a disk with my laptop uh, which had the data from the simulations I'd already done, right? Um, right. No, I mean, I didn't because I didn't have access to su- supercomputer from no. uh, when I was out at sea, so I couldn't actually do any simulations there okay. I haven't and been trying to do a, a realistic, you know, data assimilation type of simulation. I've been more uh, exploring can we reproduce the observations with a very simple setup? So no surface forcing, um, uh, not worrying too much about um, time dependence of large-scale currents and so on, but just forcing it at the southern boundary with this dense water coming in and seeing what happens to it as it goes over the topography and, and spills into the Scotia Sea. And we get a very good correspondence just with that very simple sim- uh, simulation. So it tells us that a lot of the uh, um, mixing that's going on and so on is just due to the topography, um, and kind of mm. isolates what's happening um, at the topography and ignoring what's happening, you know, in the surface layers of the ocean and so yeah. on.
0: Yeah, no surface forcing, so that kind of means there's not really an atmosphere, so to speak, right? There's not yeah, really. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs>
1: yeah. I've been doing simulations for a, a few weeks, so I'm not trying to capture the seasonal cycle or. Anything. No, no.
0: I and like you said, what's it's what's
1: happening in the deep ocean, so we're well below the mixed layer as well. So.
0: Right. Yeah. It's really isolated from that surface, any Mm -hmm. surface processes. And it, uh, yeah, it it has its own set of dynamics. So the basimetry controls a lot of that, a lot of the mixing down there. And is that, I've seen this thread kind of emerging in oceanography lately, this thread of uh, let's rethink mixing at the bottom of the ocean. Let's rethink mixing along the continental slopes, you know, there's been lots of people who have contributed to this, but I remember seeing a talk by uh, Ruff Ferrari a couple of years ago. I think it was at an ocean sciences meeting where he presented this picture for you know, intensified bottom mixing. And it was a picture that hadn't been considered in too much detail before. So, um, so and it sounds like this study very much fits into that, into that, kind of shift in thinking it, it, it seems to you know the bottom yeah. mixing I mean, deep deep mixing
1: both the simulations and the observations show uh, increased mixing towards the bottom um what we are not trying to do is explore how that mixing then drives um much slower um uh, water mass uh, transformations Uh, and I mean we're looking at the water mass transformations and we're not trying to look at whether it's upwelling or downwelling on the Mm. large scale and so on and because this is all quite small scale right Uh, and so um I think it is definitely a a piece of the puzzle Um, the 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 kind of larger scale way of looking at things people prescribe the mixing and then you see what large-scale flow results of course if you prescribe the mixing and then you get a a, a large certain large scale flow, that ought to then feed back on the mixing because you'll mm. modify the stratification with your large scale flow and so 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 I feel like um, I mean ultimately it would be nice to find a way of um, allowing the the mixing to evolve in response to um, the, the changes in the large scale stratification and and flow and because we know that for example tidal mixing. Um, d- driven by the tides over bottom topography, that depends on the stratification near the bottom. And so, if you change that stratification by uh, upwelling denser waters, or uh, you're, you're going to um, uh, then change the the tidal mixing again. So um, you can't really hold the mixing constant and see how the large scale flow responds. Um, that's only half the half the story, I think. Right.
0: Yes, this is part of that broader picture of the way the ocean evolves is so multi-scale you know what's happening on small scales can matter for the large scales and what's happening on the large scales affects the small scales and they all talk to each other and it's uh so Your that particular study you mentioned it's interesting to think about that that was trying to understand mixing on the level of what instabilities can show up and what can under what conditions do you get certain instabilities in particular regions of the ocean all quite small scale stuff but as you mentioned that small scale mixing needs to feed into the larger picture, which kind of leads me to a, an application area for all this is, okay, where do we go with that? Like, let's say, let's say that we do figure out a lot more interesting information and detailed information about how small scale mixing works. How do we feed that into climate models? How do we feed mm-hmm. that into, is that part of where the climate process teams, you know, could potentially yes. come into play?
1: Yeah, so um, the two climate process teams that I've been involved in, the first was for uh, uh, overflows. Um, So what? how do we better represent overflows in climate models and what are the mixing processes that take place in overflows? And um, so that was a multi-institutional uh, thing.
0: Can you um, say a little bit about what an overflow is just to... Oh, yes. So uh, dense
1: water that's coming from, uh, say, a marginal sea uh, like the uh, greenland Ice and Nor- norwegian Sea and flowing over the topography and down into the, the open ocean. So, for example, through Denmark Straits or the Farabank Channel, those are two uh, places that the, uh, the norwegian, greenland Ice and norwegian Sea connects to the North Atlantic. Um, and the dense water that comes through these overflows as it cascades down the slope, Um, It accelerates and that leads to uh, shear instability and mixing with the overlying fluid. Um, There's also um, baroclinic instability that breaks off lumps of the dense water as as eddies. Um, There's the possibility for um, hydraulic jumps, which is uh, another kind of lateral transport and and mixing mechanism. and of course, these overflows are important uh, around Antarctica as well, taking the dense shelf water down the slope and forming Antarctic bottom water. And uh, so the Orkney um, Passage is uh, the location of, uh, of an overflow, taking water from um, the Woodell Sea down into the bottom of the Scotia Sea, where it feeds into Antarctic bottom water. Um, so uh, what what we've done is try to explore ways of representing the, the mixing for example in terms of the the model's resolved parameters um so as a result of that um uh, climate process team uh, gfdl has a, a shear driven mixing parameterization um which uh
0: but the gfdl is the geophysical fluid dynamics laboratory right that's also yeah. in Princeton. yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's
1: where i work really um mm. Uh, my my employer is officially Princeton, but my office is in the GFTL building oh right um, okay and so the um that that first climate process team gave us um some new parameterizations for the mixing um in the interior of the ocean um and it also we also um uh, developed better numerical algorithms, so that wasn't part of uh, an- anything I contributed to that um, allowed us to um, better represent the overflows as well. Um, and so then you, you have that in a climate model and you explore um, how do the large-scale properties of the circulation depend on these representation of small-scale processes. Hmm. So for example, so I had a, a graduate student, Huang, who um, explored how changing the mixing in the Denmark Strait and Farabank Channel overflows Influence the uh, Atlantic overturning circulation. So, if you increase the mixing, the overturning circulation was faster but shallower mm. and less dense. Um, and um, uh, uh, so, so, another example is with tidal mixing. Um, the, the second climate process team I was involved in focused on internal wave driven mixing. So, internal waves are waves in the um, stably stratified ocean, uh, in the interior of the ocean, underwater. And they can be excited by a variety of mechanisms, but one of the main mechanisms is the tides flowing over topography generates um, internal waves at the tidal frequency um, and they propagate away from the topography where they're created both vertically and horizontally
0: um, yeah, tides are challenging aren't they they're um, hard to resolve, and people are often surprised to learn that a lot of ocean models don't even have tides in them because that's such you that's such a common part of our encounter with the ocean like Mm -hmm. if you live or stay or visit you know the beach then you think about the tides but it's uh it's actually a pretty challenging part to model uh
1: yeah so in climate models we generally don't include the tides mm -hmm. but we can still include uh parameterizations of mixing driven by the tides yes um so um because we have offline tidal models and assuming that um Those give reasonably good uh, predictions even under changing um, interior stratification um, of of the surface tides. We can then apply those tidal velocities plus the stratification from the climate model to then predict what the energy in the internal tide is. And from that energy in the internal tide, we can then uh, predict how much uh, mixing takes place. Um, And so we've improved our parameterizations of the mixing driven by. Uh, breaking internal tides Um, so just as waves break on the beach waves in the interior of the ocean can break too and then they mix up the heat and salt Um, and that uh, mixing depends on not just the the tides and the topography but also on the stratification uh, which you, you can find from the climate model then you put in the mixing and the stratification will change and so then the mixing has to change too And so it's important to have a parameterization that doesn't just give you a fixed value of mixing, but accounts for the changes as the climate, uh, the interior climate of the ocean changes. Um, So we, as part of the the internal wave-driven mixing climate process team, um, we had a a postdoc, Angelique Mollet, who's now um, uh, working in France, um, and she uh, explored a lot how changing the parameterization of uh, the internal tide-driven mixing what impacts that had on the large-scale ocean circulation and climate?
0: Yeah, the small scales talking to the large scales. Mm-hmm. Are there other? Um, what's the next kind of frontier in hooking up the mixing processes to the large-scale circulation and large-scale changes? What are the next kind of frontiers you're you're chipping away at? <laughs>
1: um, cool. Well, something that we uh, looked at a little bit, but I think is still quite incomplete is the. Um, uh, the internal waves that are driven by geostrophic flow over topography. So these uh, internal waves, known as Lee waves, they're very similar to the waves generated by flow going over mountains in the atmosphere. Mm. Um, so they're generated over topography by the, the geostrophic flow, the more slowly varying flow, and then they propagate upwards. Um, and we've we have some... Uh, Fairly simple parameterizations for the mixing that can be generated when those Lee waves break, but we don't actually really know where they break. Um, There's some discrepancy between the observations and the the theoretical predictions. Um, And until we know where that where that wave energy goes before it breaks, uh, we don't have very much confidence in our parameterizations. So that I think and that's important because it's a connection between the mesoscale eddy field and the mixing. Um, So it's not just the large scale stratification influencing mixing, but also the mesoscale eddy field influencing mixing. And there's been a lot of work, you know, on um, how the mesoscale eddy field um, uh, changes, as say you change the winds in the Southern Ocean, um, and then how that can feed back on the overturning circulation uh, in the Southern Ocean and the stratification. So all of that will also feed back onto the mixing, and if we don't get that mixing right, then we're not going to get that um, that whole feedback process uh, correct.
0: Right. It's very, it's very iterative, right? Mm-hmm. The whole process is very iterative, both in terms of how all the scales talk to each other and eventually when you run your model, that's also iterative because that, that has to you know, go through all of those interactions as well and all of the different ways in which you have parameterized the small scale effects. You mentioned the, the mesoscale, and I just thought I would... Would editorialize a little bit and say that that's kind of kind of the scale of oceanic weather, sort of you know largest scale oceanic weather, um, and it's uh, that that mesoscale is not typically resolved in a lot of climate models. I mean, I guess we're starting to reach that regime where we're starting to you know, resolve some of the mesoscales in some climate type models, but um, it's it's certainly even just processes happening on that scale, we don't necessarily explicitly resolve. Yeah.
1: And, and we have a lot more experience in parameterizing the impact of the mesoscale. So the main um, parameterization of, of the mesoscale um, uh, removes some of the potential energy of the background flow by flattening the density surfaces. Yes. Um, but what we've realized we now need to do is is uh, keep track of that energy which is in our unresolved mesoscale eddy field, and make sure that we're using then some of that mesoscale kinetic energy to then lead to mixing through um, generation of internal waves and so on um, and Another way that we can connect the the, the mesoscale um, eddy energy with mixing is through um, symmetric instability so it's another of these um, um mixing processes or, or instability processes that falls in a scale range in between the mesoscale and the very small scales of turbulence uh, so just like internal waves can mm. connect those scales and uh, symmetric instability can also connect those scales and so that's one of the things we think is happening in um, the orkney passage for example and then um, my current graduate student elizabeth yankowski she's been looking at uh, symmetric instability in uh, dense currents uh, flowing off the, the shelf in the Arctic, for example, um, and you generate the conditions that can lead to this particular type of instability, symmetric instability, um, which is quite fascinating because it's not a, a vertical mixing, neither is it a horizontal eddy stirring, but it's a kind of slantwise uh, process. And it can transfer energy from much larger scales to uh, smaller scales, and then those smaller scales can become unstable to the turbulence generating instabilities, and um, so you get a kind of cascade of instabilities taking energy from the larger scale down to turbulent mixing.
0: Right, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's um, uh, I've loved hearing you describe all of those processes, and you know, I I mean, I'm in oceanography as well, um, but I don't typically work on the scale of you know, let's look at individual mixing processes necessarily you know i'm kind of regional or global that sort of scale so i really i was like hearing somebody who's really knowledgeable about those process level uh things to talk for a little bit so yeah so it sounds like do you have a big group there at the moment at princeton do you have you have yeah or you know over the years i guess you've had students and postdocs and um Oh, sorry. Maybe you froze up a little bit.
1: Yeah, so not not really very big, because I'm um I'm I sit at GFDL and so we have a, a fairly sizable ocean and cryosphere group at GFDL. Mm-hmm. Um but um we have a very small graduate program. Um and we typically only have about um 20 students total in the whole atmosphere and ocean sciences program, and they're shared amongst many different um aspects of Ocean and atmospheric science. Um, so I personally have only advised uh, three students, and I, I now have a fourth um, who's just started. And then um, postdocs, we um, we we have a, a lab-wide um, postdoctoral uh, scheme that uh, is competitive, and, and people can apply for. But again, they get shared around the different groups. Um, so no one group can ke- have all the postdocs. Uh, so I'm advising one postdoc currently, and I've had a, a few more in the past. Um, but it, So th- those are just the people that I'm personally advising. But of course, as I said, we, we have a fairly large uh, group of ocean and cryosphere uh, scientists, and it's a very teamwork sort of place at GFTL. Um, so I've had a lot of papers uh, with my colleagues, um, uh, Collaborators at GFDL over the years since I've been there.
0: Where were you before GFDL?
1: So I've been at GFDL since 2004, and before that, I was at oh. Woods Hole Oceanographic for seven years. Um, and before and that. that was your,
0: was oh, sorry, that was, and that was your PhD program with the Woods Hole?
1: No, no? Um, no. So I actually did my PhD at Imperial College with John Marshall. Okay, right. And at the same time as David Marshall, I know you've chatted with David.
0: Yes, we have. <laughs>
1: um, and then uh, we all moved to MIT when John Marshall moved to MIT. So I spent the last year of my PhD at MIT. Okay. And then um, then I did a postdoc with Jim McWilliams at, at, um, at NCAR. Um, and then Jim McWilliams moved to UCLA and I moved mm. too. Um, and so I spent a, a total of 4 years working with Jim at Williams before I started at Woods Hole as a as a research scientist.
0: In different locations. Yeah, so <laughs> what what was the uh I'm interested to hear you talk more about the Imperial College experience. Like how did you end up there in that PhD program?
1: Oh, um, that was so. I was an undergrad in Oxford, yeah. and um, I did a physics undergraduate. And I um, I was actually interested in applying to um, grad school in the U.S. So I I didn't know very much about different programs, and I applied to physics programs rather than to oceanography or earth science programs. And um, so the one physics program that I I got an offer from um, because they they had some people who were doing um, atmospheric physics. Um, because I thought I wanted to be a meteorologist at that hmm. stage. Um, so the people from uh, MIT—they firstly they called up my um, advi- my tutors at Oxford, who I didn't get along very well with. <laughs> um, anyway, my tutors were very uh, thought it was very funny because the people from MIT had called them up to ask why my references were so bad oh, uh, okay. <laughs> compared to my GRE scores, um, and. Um, so my tutors, you know, they thought this was very funny, so they told me. And they said, well, you know, we told them that in England we don't say somebody's Einstein if they're just quite good. Um, um, so anyway, I was offered a place at MIT, but the people I spoke with, they said, well, we haven't got funding right now, so you'd have to be a TA, and that's 20 hours a week. But for our students who work about 60 hours a week normally, that will be – that's nothing. And I mm. thought, well, 60 hours a week? Um, and then, then I happened to um, – I was going to the proms or something, and I walked past the physics building at Imperial and realized they did space and atmospheric physics too. So I thought, oh, I'll call up there and see if there's anybody offering PhD there. You said
0: you realized what, how did you realize it? Was it like, what what made you?
1: (laughs) Oh, there was just like a plaque by the door with all the different groups. (laughs) (laughs) Nice.
0: Like, okay, look at that.
1: Yeah. So I, I called up John Marshall and I went down to visit and they took me out to the pub and they said, oh, every Friday we go to the pub and every day we go and have coffee together upstairs. And I thought, well, this seems like a much more relaxed place than going to MIT. So that is how I chose my PhD program.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like where can you actually have a life as opposed yeah, yeah. to just living in in the lab the whole time? The, the, not the literal lab, but, you know, the metaphorical living in the science lab. Was that... Um, was that an adjustment when you did eventually end up moving to the States in terms of how did you navigate that difference in work culture? Because I've, I've sort of gotten to go the other way, right? Because I did all mm-hmm. my education stuff in the States. Um, although it has to be said, I, I was out at Colorado State um, and they have a, a very sensible attitude out there. At least they, they sure did when I was there about making sure that people have a good work-life balance. That's uh, some of that healthy You know, North Colorado kind of mentality. Uh, You know, staying, staying outdoorsy and staying healthy Mm -hmm. and staying, staying fit and hanging out with friends. So, I I didn't. It's not like I went from some East Coast place to the UK, but there was still a little bit of an adjustment. Of, um, you know, I got fussed at for working on the weekends, for example. Like, you know, what are you doing? You're supposed to be. (laughs) You're supposed to be relaxing a little bit
1: Yeah so, so. I think my, my first year at MIT when I was I was in the last year of my PhD and so I was working very hard and um, and so I fit very I fit in because I just wanted to you know get my thesis finished in time. Um, but then when I started my postdoc in Colorado, um, I kind of decided okay this is the beginning of the rest of my life. Mm. I'm gonna start the way I mean to go on. And again, in Boulder, a lot of people want to go hiking at the weekend and so on. And there weren't a lot of people working in the, um, at at NCAR at the weekends. Um, And my advisor actually, I mean, Jim Williams um, is very focused on his work, but he's also very good at partitioning things. And he goes hiking at the weekends and and when he was younger, would go rock climbing and so on. Um, So... um, he, uh, he, he never fussed about me not being in the, around at the weekends or anything like that. Um, he was pretty, um, he didn't micromanage or anything. So, as long as I was producing work, he was, seemed quite happy. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, I just pretty much tried to start the way I intended to carry on. And I've tried to keep those boundaries ever since. I mean, sometimes it fluctuates. When I first started at Woods Hole, Um, especially the the first year when I didn't really know too many people and uh, we were living in a pretty not very nice rental place. Um, I spent a lot of my weekends in the winter working. Um, But then we bought a house and we started spending all of our weekends working on the house. And then I had kids. And, you know, since I had kids, my schedule became 8.30 to 4.30 every day. That was it. Um, And no working at weekends. Um, And it's only recently, as my kids have got older, and they have a lot of homework. So then I think, well, I may as well do some work in the evening while they're working. Um, and then, you know, when I have, I've also taken on too many different tasks now. And so in order to keep on top of all of them, I do find myself working at weekends when I have no planned other thing I want to do. So,
0: Yeah, the calendar gets full. It didn't, uh, we, I, I also have that same problem of taking on too many things. So I'll definitely say thanks again for taking this on as an additional <laughs> additional thing to do. I really appreciate that. And um, so, the uh, did you did you grow up around? Um, so you went went to Oxford for undergrad, you said, right? Where'd you grow up?
1: Oh, so I grew up in Zambia. So, yeah? um, and I'm not the only physical oceanographer who grew up in Zambia. Uh, Ivan Haig also grew up in Zambia. He's, hmm. I think, uh, in Southampton now. I've never met him, but we connected. Um, and so mm-hmm. I didn't see the ocean until the age of three, um, uh, when my parents took me to Sri Lanka. Um, my mother is originally from Sri Lanka. Um, and then I, the first time I remember seeing the ocean was when I was six, we went to Tanzania, uh, on a, on holiday. Um, and I, so I hardly ever saw the ocean the first 10 years, 10 years of my life, um, then I started at boarding school in the UK when I was 11 uh, in Somerset. And my pa- my grandparents lived in Devon. So I would go and stay with them uh, quite frequently for the weekend. And I saw the ocean a lot there, of course. Um, they were in the, on the South Devon coast. But I never really intended to become an oceanographer. I was always going to be a climate scientist or, or a meteorologist. Um, so as a kid, I was fascinated with weather and I had uh, all my thermometers and, and stuff like this. Um, So I I was interested in the weather from about the age of nine or so. And Hmm. and that was my plan to be a meteorologist.
0: What's the climate like in Zambia?
1: Um, So Zambia is a kind of high altitude um, tropical climate. Um, So it has uh, very well-defined rainy seasons and dry seasons, Um, but it's also cooler than many places at that latitude. Um, So in the winter months, June and July, um, you could get frost occasionally, um, and it was very very pleasant in in the winter. And then there's the the rainy season would start in sort of October and carry on through March or April. Uh, and then there was a very hot period in about um, uh, September October before the rains came.
0: Hmm. Is so you said you were there until eleven or. Or at least that's when you um, started. Yeah,
1: so my my father had actually grown up in Zambia himself, and so uh, he was at university in England um, uh, around the time he was doing his masters when I was born. Um, and then when he finished, we went out to Zambia. So I was three months old. Um, mm. And uh, when I went off to boarding school at age eleven, my parents were still in Zambia. But then they moved to Kenya for a couple of years, and then to Saudi Arabia for several years. Oh wow. Uh, And then they they actually lived in England the time I was in college because that helped to get uh, British uh, resident uh, tuition. Right. Um, And then they went off to Asia for a decade um, and then back to Africa for another few years. And then finally, when my father retired, they live in Bristol now.
0: Can I ask, uh, what was the line of work that kept them moving around all over the place? So
1: my father was a geologist, yeah. um, but I actually think he became a geologist because he grew up in Zambia and he wanted a job that he could do there, sort of thing. You know? <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so he, he, he was a geologist, he was an earth scientist. Um, and so um, I'm, I'm very privileged to have parents who understand what I do, um, to, um, who can see the importance of you know, working in climate science and so on.
0: Right. So they were supportive. They understood They understood your kind of pathway, more or less. They said, oh, oh no, yeah, we, we understand the academic thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so my, my dad did a master's. He he thought about doing a PhD occasionally, but by then he had small children and, and he decided it was going to be too difficult. So he he did largely economic geology, um, prospecting for minerals. Um, some of the time he was in Zambia, he ran a consultancy um uh, prospecting for for water, in fact, which is you know very valuable in a country where it's dry half the year. Um, and then he he moved uh, sideways a bit into uh, remote sensing in the early years of of remote sensing and GIS. Um, and um, the latter part of his career, well, he when he was in England, he worked at the National Remote Sensing Centre, which is well, at least at that time, it was in Farnborough. Um, and then he worked in in Asia doing land use and forestry applications of, of remote sensing in Sri Lanka and Indonesia. Um, and then in Cameroon and Nigeria, he again did more sort of agricultural and forestry applications of remote sensing.
0: Wow. How about your mom? Um,
1: so she, I think would have loved to have been a scientist. Um, but she, she went to a school for girls that didn't do science. Uh, Um, uh, so she actually studied economics at university and became an accountant and she didn't really like it much. mm. Um, um so mostly while i was a child she worked in um uh various kind of volunteer enterprises related with um wildlife uh, so she ran a radio show for kids um uh, uh, a kind of wildlife program and then she did a tv program this is in zambia
0: wow.
1: um we did this nature club in zambia called the chongololo club and um chongololo is the the uh, name for a millipede um and um, and it, she would get kids from different schools around Zambia to come and um, uh, participate on the show every week and things like this. Um, and then um, uh, she's in in Nigeria. She actually had a funded project um, uh, doing sort of outreach um, for for children uh, related to some of the, the forestry work that was done at the uh, at the institute and things like this. Um, but I, I imagine, I can imagine if she'd been born 20 years later, she would have uh, had a, a real scientific career.
0: Um, yeah. Do you have any siblings?
1: Um, yes. Yeah, so I have one younger brother who lives in the UK um, and he works in data science.
0: Hmm. OK. Yeah. he was also born in Zambia, also grew, grew up. Yeah. There.
1: Yeah. So he he's only 18 months younger than me and he hmm. was actually born in Zambia Um and, um, and we we spent a lot of time together, especially when we were very little and we lived outside of the city. Um, uh, and then we went to the same boarding school in England um, together at the same time. So, yeah, we spent a lot of time together.
0: Right. You said you were born in the U.K. and then moved over. You were like three months old. <laughs> yeah. My, our, our son, so he was born in the U.S. and then we moved over just before his second birthday. So he's now spent way more of his life here in the U.K. than in the U.S. overall. Mm-hmm. It, so it's interesting for me to think about that like no matter where we end up this is going to be you know one of his childhood homes it's certainly going to be one of the dominant places that's you know is sticking in his memory in terms of those formative early experiences so I wonder um, do, you, do you ever visit Zambia or have you been back recently
1: um I have not so the last time I went back was in 2006 and that was actually the first time since 1980 that I had been back. Oh, wow. My brother has been back more than I have. And in fact, the reason I went in 2006 was my, my brother was getting married at that time. Um, and my, I have um, two uncles and a cousin who still live in Zambia. And because as I said, my father grew up in Zambia. Um, mm-hmm. It's... Um, I, I would love to go back. It's just you know hard finding the time. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah are there are there things like uh, I don't know what made me think of this question. Maybe we just had dinner, maybe that's what was making me think of this, but um are there any like food or any dishes from there that you that you kind of like to cook or that maybe you wish you could get again or things that uh, maybe it's a long time ago, I know, you know yeah, I don't know I mean,
1: but... the, the one food I remember eating is Nshima, which is a kind of cornmeal porridge. Um, but, um, I, th- I, 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 there wasn't a very well-developed kind of restaurant culture or anything right. when I was there. I think there is much more so now. Um, what I tend to cook much more is, uh, food from Sri Lanka, where my mother is from. Mm-hmm. And I spent a year in Sri Lanka when I was 18. And, um, and so got, uh, hands-on cooking lessons and things like, and my grandmother also taught me uh, some recipes. Um, and so that 's my kind of uh, comfort food, uh, and now, in New Jersey, I can buy everything I need to cook uh, Sri Lankan food, so uh, that we have nice. lots of um, South Asian supermarkets and things that stock everything so.
0: oh cool there was um, There was one of those in Atlanta when I lived there, just a really gigantic uh, kind of Asian supermarket, and it was awesome and My wife knows a little bit about how to how to cook with some of those things. And so uh yeah that was that was really good for us. So I'm kind of conscious of the time. Uh there's about 10 minutes left. I usually like to close up by asking some questions about some things that you've learned. Mm-hmm. So I guess um I I want to make sure I give you enough time to to answer. So I wonder do you want me to just pick a couple of them or do we want to you mentioned that you might be able to that you might be able to postpone the other meeting or I'll, I'll let yeah. you decide what would be good for you.
1: I, I will just send my uh, student an email quickly um, okay. saying that I'll be, um, uh, I'll join, I'll call, uh, I'll postpone until um, uh, for, for half an hour. Um, okay. Um, and then we can just carry on. Um,
0: sure. I could hit, I could hit pause if you want. and <laughs> We could take a quick Sorry. break. <laughs> Very good yeah you know what's um you get like a transcript of the conversation and uh it's kind of funny to look at those cuz overall i think it does a pretty good job but there are some pretty hilarious you know misunderstandings you know in <laughs> the attempt to automatically transcribe the conversations um yeah so the just kind of near the end here i like to give people a chance to talk about what they've learned along different dimensions so the the first one's pretty broad but what's something that you learned about science that you didn't know before really getting into it
1: um i guess i didn't realize how you have to sometimes do a lot of boring stuff before you find an exciting result mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of debugging code or um Uh, doing simulations that don't work or red herring following red herrings or whatever and then your really exciting key results um, you know they don't happen every day
0: no I remember one of my first uh, advisors when I was starting in uh, astrophysics so um, that was my my first little research area where I was just an assistant but um, he, he had a uh, a harsher way to put that he said you're like well you know ninety nine percent of what you're gonna do is going to be garbage and then maybe the one percent is going to be <laughs> something <laughs> useful so I don't, garbage is a little harsh but you know that's the idea that you're gonna have to hit your head uh, against the wall quite a lot before you get anything you know really nice and useful so it's uh yeah there's a lot of a lot of n- uh, not necessarily groundbreaking or amazing stuff to churn through um, but I guess it's good if you can enjoy the process of it though right so as long as you know that that's what the process is like and as long as you enjoy that process and don't mind turning through all the things which might not be amazing then it's okay if you see me rolling around i'm on an exercise ball so that's why ah. i'm like <laughs> drifting cool. to some side. we uh we, we've uh been playing around with different office arrangements here in the house to try to get uh 'cause because my, my wife's working as well and yeah. our, our son is at home so we're we're trying different solutions out we're seeing how it works um what's something you've learned about um mentoring overall like mentoring students and mentoring um well anybody in your group really because that's that's not a skill that is taught necessarily
1: so, I mean, one thing I have learned is that every student is different. And sometimes it takes a while to find out what um, uh, what motivates a particular student and what things they find easy versus hard and so on. You know, sometimes the thing which seems really simple to me is the thing which they struggle with. So then we hmm. have to find a, a, a way around Um um, not, not, not that it's. I, I don't mean you know, sort of intellectually difficult, but just um, in terms of getting motivated, or um, uh, the the thing which is going to take a lot of time for them might be the thing that might have been quick for me, and then vice versa. Um, so I, I, I have to really learn to step back and not project myself onto my students, and and try and find out what makes them tick.
0: Right. Yeah. You need good need a good level of empathy and a good ability to understand things from other people's perspective and um and that they can take practice too that's a muscle like many other muscles right yeah
1: and to not be judgmental about somebody else's choices you know there's no uh, good way to say schedule your day um mm and and so you 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 have to um you know just accept that what works for you doesn't work for somebody else and uh, you have to encourage the students to find what works for them
0: yeah I, i like the i think oceanography overall is pretty good at giving people freedom at working how they need to work i'm sure that's not universally true i'm sure there are some people who feel really micromanaged but I think on average, we do a pretty good job of recognizing that people have very different working styles. And um, yeah, okay, we weren't saying like, don't work on the weekends. But um, well, maybe some people like to work a little less hard during the week, and then do a little bit more on the weekends. And if that works for your life, it's okay. (laughs) It's fine. Yeah.
1: And some people like to really um, work in a big burst really Mm. hard for a few weeks, and then take some time off, you know, so um, different people do have very different styles. Yeah,
0: I can see the appeal of that. And I guess on the same, along a similar vein, is there something, what's something you learned about teaching along the way? Different than mentoring, but is, there's some parallels. There's some similar things. People learn in different ways.
1: Yeah, so I think one thing I'm I'm still working on is trying to find different ways of getting at the same thing, all in the same class, you know, so... Um, you want to um, uh, show something visually, you want to go through the equations, you want to um, give um, analogies, you want to get people to figure it out for themselves, um, all of those sorts of ways of of learning something. Um, uh, And one method won't work for everybody.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, I may have missed this earlier. Are you doing any online teaching now? Is that part of it? Yes, your? I
1: am. Yeah. So uh, in fact, uh, so we had spring break the first week that we were sent home and that was uh, good because it helped me to try and figure out how I was going to do things. Um, and, uh, and since then I found that teaching is taking more of my time than it normally would because I need to be more prepared when I'm teaching online I can't wing it as much, you know. I'm teaching the same class I've taught for a decade, hmm. uh, but I'm having to actually uh, really go thoroughly through my notes in advance um, because it's it's a lot harder to just kind of figure things out on the fly uh, hmm. when I'm writing on on the Zoom whiteboard or whatever. Um, and it's also a lot harder to see whether the students are understanding what I'm talking about. Right. Uh,
0: yeah, it's it's hard to see people's body language. Really, I mean, you sort of yeah. can. But I imagine if you've got a lot of students, uh, I mean, you know, even 10 or 20 little rectangles on your screen, it's yeah, yeah, going not be impossible. Some
1: of them, you know, it's early in the morning, so they don't want to turn the video on or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm just pleased they are all all uh, joining in real time. I'm recording the lectures and posting them on Blackboard as well um, so that the students can look at them afterwards because I, I feel like that's, that's important when it's harder for us to meet face to face to go over something again or whatever. So,
0: Yeah. There's like a, when you're in a room with students and giving a lecture, like there's, there's some kind of tone that's in there or some kind of, you can use body language and you can just use, um, I don't even know what it is. There's probably a whole bunch of subconscious things that our brains are really highly evolved to pick up on, you know, in a room full of people as to whether they're w- with us or not. Yeah, um, And we don't have any of that stuff where we have very little of that stuff when we're teaching online. So that's a, that's a big challenge. Um, how about something you've learned about, about like leadership, about you know, seeing potential and ideas and seeing potential in people and kind of championing those things. Uh, that's, that's something that takes um, learning as well. And it's uh, something I, I talked with Susan a bit about that, about that whole leadership process and learning the, the thing
1: that I am still struggling with is how to persuade um, my peers or my uh, uh, people I report to um, I'm I feel like I'm I, I know I can figure out much better how to work with postdocs and students than I can to bring my contemporaries or peers around to my way of thinking and um, and so a lot of the time I, I end up being too confrontational, I think. Um, and I, I think I've certainly got a reputation of being somebody who doesn't shy away from confrontation. Um, oh, really? um, but sometimes it would be nice to go to work and not have to have a fight every day.
0: <laughs> is that why the tutors at Oxford gave you such a hard time? Was it just like, um, is that no,
1: <laughs> they gave me a hard time because I didn't fit their... Idea of what a physicist should be.
0: Oh, no. Oh, that's awful I
1: said I was spending too much time on other things and I had a bad attitude and all this stuff And I would never make a scientist if I didn't give up all my extracurricular interests and all this sort of thing um, mm-hmm. And in my first term, I was devastated when they said this to me uh, And all it made me do was basically hide my life from my tutors. I, I, I started just lying whenever they asked me about what am I doing outside of physics and I carried that over for a long time. I would try to keep my, you know, life separate from my work. Uh, and it's only when I started getting involved in Empower, really, that I realized I had to be a role model and show people you can have a life as well as work. Um,
0: yeah. So that you had a very explicit encounter with that kind of workaholic culture mm-hmm. that uh, that science really seems to um, in, uh, encourage sometimes. Or it seems. It certainly seems to. Maybe it attracts people with a propensity for workaholism. Maybe that's maybe that's part of where it comes from. I don't know.
1: Well, um, well I think with tutors like I had, it pushes out people who don't want to fit that mold. Hmm. Um, I mean, I know that uh, some of my um, some of the other people in my year quit physics because they they said, "Well, I hate it because of the way we have to be," and so on. Um my attitude was, well, I'm not going to be what they want me to be, but I'm still going to do physics. Um, and, nice. and so I wanted to prove that I could, you know, do it my way.
0: Um, I'm glad you did. To
1: say, well, I've had enough of this, I'm leaving. And, and
0: That's an example of the barriers we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. Right? Yeah, a the
1: that- really unnecessary barrier. We don't need to have those sorts of barriers. It doesn't help our science at all.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's excluding people needlessly just because they don't fit some preconceived notion of what a scientist looks like. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a barrier we should smash for sure. <laughs> you don't have to be a workaholic to be a good scientist. Um, and it, it's really nice to hear, you know, that more and more people have are kind of picking up on that idea and champion, championing that idea. At least I kind of hear more people explicitly saying that, um, Whereas I, I didn't hear that so much when I first started out in physics. Hmm. Okay, I did cross disciplines. I don't know if maybe in different disciplines there's a different, uh, different culture. And there, there probably is. But, but the point is that I, hopefully we're improving in terms I of think, lowering.
1: I think the trouble is that we're, we're more aware of this now. And we talk more about how important it is to have a work-life balance and so on. But at the same time, the things that, say, faculty members are being asked to do are piling on more and more and more. Mm. And so, you know, on the one hand, we we want to have a work-life balance. And on the other hand, just the the demands of the job are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and so how do we balance these two things? I don't know. Um, and From what I hear, it's even worse in the UK than it is here nowadays with all these different uh, things that faculty members have to do.
0: Um, yeah, there's a, a round of strikes right now at universities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not at a university, so I'm not... Um, I'm not directly tied up with that at the moment. I'm not, it's not directly in my line of sight at the moment, but I'm certainly watching people on Twitter and, um, you know, listening to people's arguments on Twitter about why they are, um, uh, why they're, yeah, there's some, there was uh, discussions around, you know, pensions and there was concerns over pensions being kind of slashed and reduced and concerns over workloads, you know, being increased so it, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been intense to watch that, but it's, uh, I'm a little bit outside of that. I probably, I probably should be a little bit more involved. Um, I'm in, I'm in my union. Like I'm, you know, there, there is a union for employees like myself and I've joined that and um, that's been, that's been something that's been good to be involved with. But uh, yeah, I guess, I guess uh, that does make me think about the role of unions and collective action and in breaking down some of these boundaries and breaking down some of these barriers that that's a that's a potential way to pursue it i guess uh Mm -hmm. is that if you can get enough people together in that kind of collective bargaining system to agree and say no that this these demands are unreasonable the way that we're being measured is unreasonable the way that we're being compensated is unreasonable and all of these things are barriers that are uh, bad for us personally and also bad for science and bad for the academic culture in general because it's excluding people and pushing people out who might actually be able to make really, really nice contributions and do good things for science and good things for humanity. So that's uh, there's a lot of good stuff to talk about there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I very much worry that on both sides of the Atlantic, a lot of the responsibility of teaching and so on has been given to people in precarious, precarious employment terms um, so they don't have the ability to really plan for the future to get any sort of security and so on. I mean, that doesn't apply to me. I I think, you know, I have a very cushy job really. Um, I just have to teach one graduate course a year and then I co-teach an upper-level undergraduate course so my teaching load is not high at all Um, And then I'm just mostly supposed to focus on research. But because I'm also the associate director of our cooperative institute between Princeton and GFDL, I have some other responsibilities uh, in terms of uh, postdoctoral hiring and um, uh, writing the the big proposal every few years that funds our institute and, and other sort of administrative things. And then the internship program as well. But those are things that I've taken on with my eyes open. So I can't really complain about them, you know
0: um and and empower
1: of course is empower is quite a bit of time but it's something i really enjoy so i wouldn't wouldn't uh uh, complain about it at all
0: yeah are you do you foresee a period of of pairing things down in the future potentially or because it sounds like you've grown a a large tree of things that you're responsible for and i (laughs) wonder if you feel like that you might be in a pairing phase or maybe you feel comfortable with the the way that things are configured now
1: yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to persuade more people to share some of the work, for example, of the internship program. You know, I, I put in the work to get it started and now I'm trying to get more people involved in in running some of the tasks and so on. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely better at, at saying no to things that I feel like somebody else is perfectly qualified to do. And, um,
0: <laughs> That's a good I, example of leadership, of de- <laughs> delegating. That's your <laughs> leadership question, yeah. <laughs> oh sorry i cut you off was there something else you were saying no
1: no i just had another thought about leadership so uh, another thing i've realized in um that it's very important if you're in a leadership role is to be very aware of your biases and the kind of structural biases Mm. and so on so um one thing we were doing recently was putting together these list of speakers for the Gordon conference in ocean mixing, which is unfortunately canceled um, Mm. uh, or postponed for two years. Um, And um, like many of these sorts of things, when you put together a list of speakers, we we were very clear when we first sat down to talk about it, that we were going to make sure that we had good gender balance. And the previous conference also had a pretty good gender balance. Well, it was about 30% women. uh, so we, we actually did fairly well on gender balance, but it, we found it much harder to find speakers from, say, Asia and um, outside of the English-speaking world and so on. And you realize how constrained your own networks are. Um, so I think that's a very important leadership skill is to understand the limitations of your own networks and to be willing to ask uh, other people going outside of your networks to to um expand the reach of your activity, whatever it is you're you're trying to organize. Um otherwise if you just ask the people you know, you're you're not going to be necessarily getting the best people.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that also makes me think about, um excuse me, hold on. That also makes me think about one thing I've heard about a good way to counter all those internal biases that we have because it's, it's probably impossible to be perfectly aware of all of them and to perfectly counter all of them. But the thing you can do is make sure that if you have an organizing committee for a conference to try to have that organizing committee be as diverse as possible. And that way, if people are, and that way those individual biases hopefully will kind of offset each other to an extent or will, you know, you you won't fall down the trap of having everybody biased in the same direction so that uh, you can, you can hopefully combat that by statistics, (laughs) the statistics of having biases in different directions.
1: Although you can't, that's not a panacea. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, these kind of bias studies have shown that that women are uh, just as biased as men um, Mm -hmm. in terms of say picking experts will tend to pick men. Um, and it's just w- women are more willing to um, acknowledge that there is a bias and, and to, to worry more about that being a problem. Um, uh, but, and then if you have a small um, organizing committee um, and you're choosing a lot of speakers, well, you can't expect your small organizing committee to be, say, uh, 20% people from uh, the global south, um, but you could definitely expect that for your um, the, the the invited speakers. So you're, you 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 have to um, your organizing committee has to be willing to look beyond their affinity groups, um, and um, uh, it's uh, especially for people from more minority groups. That's the only way they're ever going to be represented is if people who are doing the organizing who have the power. Uh, will go beyond their own affinity groups
0: i guess that actually relates to something that we started talking about you know a network like empower is focused and defined in a particular scope in a region and we've outlined just now the case for a very different kind of network which tries to be as broad and open as possible and connective across the whole planet as possible so um yeah that's a nice argument for you need lots of different kinds of networks for different purposes depending on you know what the objective is so that you can build those networks to achieve those different purposes um yeah okay that sounds good so i I do have a couple more I, i wonder about this is a more practical question um what's something you've learned about writing and do you enjoy writing
1: um Yes, I like writing a lot. I have not had enough kind of formal training in writing, I often feel. Um, So compared, for example, with um, undergraduate students here at Princeton, who have to take all these writing classes, no matter what um, uh, they're majoring in, um, my writing is much more uh, informal and a bit sloppy and needs a lot of editing. Um, But I don't usually find writing the difficult part of writing a paper. The, the, the difficult part for me is often um, getting those uh, simulations to work and debugging and uh, <laughs> kind of uh, getting the, the results. Once I have the results, um, uh, I like the, the process of making a story out of them and so on. And mm. uh, wordsmithing and editing and all that, um, I, I'm... I don't have any difficulty with that. Really.
0: You enjoy that. Yeah, I, can relate.
1: I, I, I do use too many words, just as when I talk. I, I was having to squeeze it down and try and make my sentence not run over and so on.
0: I can relate to the, uh, I was just trying to get something to compile before this call and no luck yet. I'm still getting... <laughs> Uh, cryptic Fortran errors that I don't understand yet, so I'm doing some Googling and, and trying to understand what they are. So yeah, I can I can relate to that being a frustrating part of the process. Um, it's really interesting. One of the themes that's come up on this podcast is that um, there's not one type of science writer. You know, some some scientists, some very successful scientists, just hate writing, and it's just like pulling teeth for them. Mm-hmm. And they figured out a way that they can do it that works for them. And other scientists really, really love it. And it's like one of their favorite parts of the job. Um, so there can be a lot of diversity in terms of writing, uh, one's affinity for writing and you know, the, the, the way your relationship with writing. There's lots of different relationships with writing in science.
1: And I've seen it with my students and my coworkers and so on, how people have very different um, ways of going about writing. And some people would just write and write and write, and it's just way too much. And other people will sit there struggling to get one mm. paragraph out. Yeah. Um, and and trying to find ways to work around these, these hurdles for different people um, is part of the role of being a mentor, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's part of what I don't like about all these internet articles about like five things you have to do to write properly. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I don't know, you got to find a way that works for you. And it's okay to try different techniques out. Try to take different techniques on for size, but ultimately you've got to find something that makes sense for you
1: I mean one oh. thing I wish is that I was better at writing in a more interesting way uh, about technical things. you know mm. when I was at school you either we mostly just did creative writing um but we can't really do creative writing when we're writing our um, scientific uh, articles mm. uh, and so when I write science articles, I read it and I think, oh, this is really. <laughs> pedantic and then I have to try and think of some way of making it you know more interesting to read
0: it's hard yeah like if you talk about well why did you choose that uh, vertical that particular vertical resolution you know to find a nice a pleasant but correct and rigorous way to mm. say something that's interesting yeah that's a challenge that's like a that's a highly constrained creative challenge
1: yeah
0: yeah <laughs> or maybe over constrained possibly um well, what's something that, this is a, a way too big of a question, but I, I like it anyway. Um, what's something you learned about the ocean and climate <laughs> that you didn't know before getting involved with uh, with the field? Something that surprised you along the way? Or?
1: Um, I think um, I had no idea that um, there's so much happening beneath the surface in the deep ocean um, until. I, I started my PhD. Um, I mean, as a when you're a non-oceanographer, all you know about the ocean is that there's the Gulf Stream and there are waves, um, and that's about it, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I, I find it amazing that we have all these different scales of motion, all sorts of different dynamics going on, and they're all interacting with each other, um, and they all play some sort of uh, part in important problems like storage of heat and carbon dioxide and um, nutrients and so on um so in order to understand these big societally important prob- questions we have to understand all this small-scale fluid dynamics as well
0: yeah absolutely well uh, sonia thanks very much for your time is there anything else you want to talk about
1: um i think i've I, I think that's all I can think of right now. <laughs> yeah,
0: that was great. Thanks very thanks much for your time. I really appreciated that conversation. It was a real pleasure to um, have you here on the other side of the screen and a uh, real pleasure to delve into mixing and leadership and networks and all of the lovely stuff that we talked about.
1: Well, it's um, been fun to be able to talk with somebody outside of my immediate family or my uh, you know, office uh, coffee Zoom group. <laughs> Uh, to talk to another scientist about science.
0: Yes. Oh, great! I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. Well, uh, Sonia, I'm very glad you didn't listen to your tutors at Oxford. I'm very glad you <laughs> defied them. <laughs> no. So, uh, I hope you have a good good day, good weekend. Take care, and um, I uh, hopefully we'll meet you in person at some point. Yes. Yeah. I did actually see you from a distance uh, at Ocean Sciences in San Diego, but I didn't actually get a chance to say hi. And, <laughs> and I think we bumped into there. each
1: other at some other meeting when I remember I said, I know you from Twitter or something. And, uh,
0: it, oh, <laughs> I don't exactly you,
1: which meeting that was. Maybe, maybe the previous th- Ocean Sciences. Or- I
0: think you're right. I think there are people that I see every two years. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it would be cool if you were one of those people that I saw at least every two years. So yeah. I'll... Uh, I'll look for you at the next one, whether it's real or virtual. (laughs) Good. Okay. Take care. Thank you you very much. Bye-bye. There you have it. My conversation with oceanographer, Dr. Sonia Legg at Sonia Legg on Twitter. And as you know, or maybe not, it doesn't matter. I'm at Dan Jones ocean. You can follow updates. You can follow that account and you can also get updates about the podcast at ClimateSciPod, but that's all fine. That's all fine. I think I've decided to maybe use these little outro things as just my little bit of time to, to blab about whatever. Is that lame? Maybe, uh, possibly, but that's okay. I'm fine with that. So listen, like I said in the intro, I have, uh, you know, here at the house, we're doing the lockdown life thing. I have good days, we have good days, and we have days that don't work so well. We have days that um, maybe veer into bad, but we're fine. You know, we're all healthy. So when I say bad, it's definitely a relative kind of bad. A a day when just the dynamic doesn't click for whatever reason. But what's interesting is I'm actually kind of, I've made some new friends actually in this lockdown period online, completely online. Maybe it's because I'm reaching out more, I guess. Maybe it's because I'm kind of doing more online things, but it's been, it's been nice to make new friends. Of course, we're wondering, you know, when will we actually be able to get together in person? Could be weeks, could be months, could be a long time. We'll find out, but yeah, I hope you're doing all right. Take care of yourself and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.